This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 394. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. And today I have a special guest with me on the program, and that is Rich Brown from American Warrior Society and the American Warrior Show. What's up, Rich? What's going on, Concealed Carry Nation? How you guys doing? <laughs> I think everybody's excited to see that you're here. So, in fact, we got a you know we got more people checking in here on the live feed. We got uh, HR Production Two Ten. He says his first live show. And he's going to catch a good one for his first live show. We got Law of Self Defense also checking in. Hey, Andrew. So, good crowd here today. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a few more to join us. Today's episode, we want to give an honorary mention as an honorary sponsor because that's what we do here to AmericanWarriorSociety.com. It's where you can find uh, really awesome content, training, and info from Mike Seeklander, Rich Brown, and others. Uh, also, you guys host the American Warrior Show, a podcast I've been listening to for years and I'm a big fan of. Well, thanks, brother. I appreciate that. Yeah, we got uh, this month, February of 2015 is when we started. So we got five years of podcast material out there, man. That's awesome. And I think we are about a year behind you. So, yeah. Yeah, that- yeah, there wasn't much in the space when we when we started, but thankfully, you know, there's some really good stuff coming out. You guys are, you know, among the top of the heap. So, thanks for what you guys are doing. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, keep plugging away at it. So <laughs> yeah. now we, we we passed you up an episode number because we decided for whatever reason to do two a week uh, a long time ago now. Uh, but uh, it's not about quantity; it's about quality. And you guys put out some serious quality. Um, hey, also, today's episode is brought to you by, made possible by GuardianNation.com. Folks, longtime listeners, definitely familiar with Guardian Nation. And also, fairly new endeavor of ours, uh, MountainManMedical.com. And so, guys, if you don't have your kit, go pick up your kit. MountainManMedical.com. So, let's jump into it, Rich. Uh, today's episode, we're... We're going to focus on an article that you wrote last year called 10 Tips on Carrying Concealed uh, to Win a Gunfight. And this is a fantastic article, Rich. I mean, it's, it, it is, there, there's a number of points, especially as I'm going through and I'm like, oh man, I'm glad he said that or some other things that I might just have to steal from you, bro. Yeah, wear it out. <laughs> <laughs> So, what was your inspiration for writing this uh, this article? Uh, YouTube was my inspiration, Riley. Um, you, know, you get what you pay for with, with YouTube, and American War Society is a paid membership site. Let's get that out of the way. If you want to become a member, it's going to cost you less than a dollar a day. But on YouTube, man, it seems like anybody that anybody that got a concealed carry permit and has a camera and a microphone has put together a concealed carry tips. And I got to thinking, man, I was, after watching a few of these, I'm like, man, they're missing some really good stuff. And uh, and I guess we can go into my background of what makes me qualified to give a, a set of 10 tips before anybody decides they want to listen to me or not, if you want to do that. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you know, there's a lot. Of, it's true. There's a lot of tips out there, and I've seen some other articles. I've seen some YouTube videos as well where people provide some tips. And there's definitely those you come across. You're like, yeah, I don't know that I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> But I will say I agree with ninety nine point nine percent of what you wrote in this article. So thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, you're going to leave something out, or or you're going to publish it and go, man, I should have included that. Or if I was doing a top twelve tips, that would have been number twelve, whatever. But you know, you got to stop it, right? Yep. 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 Now, so in the very beginning of the article here, you actually talk about your background, uh, and and I don't know if I knew the extent of your experience myself, but you mentioned how you've been carrying a firearm concealed since 1992. Mm -hmm. That's dang near three decades. That's a while. Yeah. And, and that's what cracked me up. You know, some of the, uh, the soft community that, that have been engaged in the, in the global war on terror, and then they come out and put together their concealed carry tips. Well, I don't know how much exposure they had to carry and conceal on foreign soil or even here other than just being a civilian. So I'm like, although there's some amazing uh, folks out there putting these tips together, I mean, like I started carrying concealed uh, as a Marine overseas in 1992. I'm not saying carrying openly, but carrying concealed overseas going back, gosh, like you said, almost three decades all the way up to the present. So I've thought about it quite a bit. I've learned a few things along the way. I've certainly screwed up a few times, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's that's what uh, led me to this. So back in the '90s, particularly the early and mid '90s, concealed carry wasn't what it is today. There, you know, as far as the equipment, holsters. I mean, even the guns were not as ideal. You know, as far as design for uh, concealed carry, uh, the way a lot of things are today. W what was it like for you? I mean, you mentioned 1992. You were a Marine at the time, is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. So, and, and you also mentioned that you uh, carried concealed in the military. So yes. what did that look like? And what kind of, like, what kind of gear were you using to make that possible? That's funny. You know, I, I, I figured this would come up and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, because you bring up a great point. You know, there was no internet back then. So if you wanted gear specifically, like any kind of, there was no such thing as like high quality concealed carry gear. I mean, there was probably some leather holster manufacturers that were making some stuff, but they were few and far between. And I was a, uh, a colonel's driver and his, uh, you know, driver and slash bodyguard PSD, I guess they'd call it today. And, um, and I, I did that for, uh, I took a tour with the, the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, special operations capable. We went all over the Europe and Northern Africa and the Middle East. And I knew that this was coming up and I knew that I was going to have to carry concealed for the times that we went out in plain clothes and stuff like that. I, I ended up getting, I'm going to tell it, uh, people are going to laugh at me, but it's all I had, Riley. And it was an Uncle Mike's inside the waistband holster, man, because that was just like, that's all I could find, man. Yeah. Well, you know, I th I think most of us uh, have probably been there at some point. <laughs> and like to your point, that was all you could find. Uh, I, I first started carrying concealed in the early 2000s. And 
even then there you know you didn't have the plethora of options that you have today and i also didn't know better frankly and there's definitely some good options but my first holster was an uncle mike's too i mean wow yeah. <laughs> sack of crap but you know that's where i started and uh i'm glad to know that that's where you started as well <laughs> yeah it's funny uh I remember, you know, I needed something because I was going to be carrying what the Marine Corps said I was going to be carrying. That was a Breda M9. So I had to get a, a holster big enough to fit that. Yet it had to be inside the waistband. And I mean, the possibilities were very, very small back then. And after going through several gun stores in and around Camp Lejeune, I'm like, okay, this is going to have to work. Here we go. You know? Yep. Your story reminds me a lot of uh, Jeff Gonzalez, you know, Navy SEAL, uh, that similar thing, you know, going overseas, uh, being on some operations, uh, some part of a part of some missions uh, where he had to be in plain clothes, carrying concealed. And uh, his story is so funny because he went to uh, uh, pick up, you know, he, he got his, he got his, he got his orders. He got his papers. He knew where he was going, what he was going to be doing. And he was told to report to the armory and get his concealed carry kit, he called it. That's what he was told. And he showed up and, you know, I was like, I'm here to get the concealed carry kit. Oh, oh yeah, just a minute. And then pull out of a drawer, a M9 and a probably like an Uncle Mike's holster. It was, he said, he described it as just like a little, a little pouch. Yeah. <laughs> like, here you go. Here's your concealed carry kit. And he was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. You know, I guess I got to make it work, you know? <clears throat> Yeah, the first time, so we were on ship, so I was getting issued this M9, two magazines, and 30 rounds of ammunition, and the holster was on me to get. I mean, they had this leather thing that you wore out. You could wear it outside, but it made it really difficult to conceal, so I went with inside the waistband, but I didn't even, back in 92, I didn't know anything about appendix carry. That wouldn't, I wouldn't get into appendix carry until probably 96, 97, uh, but yeah, man, back back then, pe people take it for granted all the the plethora of things that we have today now. The choices are virtually endless. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, we're, we're really in the heyday of concealed carry and have been for, for a few years now. Uh, but we continually see more companies, more products, you know, things coming to the market. Some great, some eh, not so great. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let's, let's start going down through your list here. All right. So as you explain in the article that these are not necessarily in any particular order, but I'm very appreciative of the fact that item number one starts where it does. And that's with training. So what do you see a mistake that a lot of concealed carriers make where it relates to training? Well, I think right out of the gate, they think um, whatever the mandatory minimum is for their state, I've achieved it. I'm done, right? It's not, it should be like a jumping off point perhaps, but a lot of times I'd say a big fat part of the bell curve with the most of the concealed carry community. I hate to use this big broad brush rally, but it seems like a lot of them, certainly not anybody listening to this today, but I'm speaking more to the, the family and friends of those of you listening today that, that need this information is they take that mandatory minimum. And I'm speaking for people in my family as well. And they think they're done. In reality, that minimum standard is not a goal, man. It's a starting point. And the other thing that the, that mandatory minimum, minimum state required training doesn't do, it doesn't necessarily talk to you about tactics. It doesn't talk to you about medical. It doesn't talk to you about 
if and when edge weapons need to come into play, if that, if that should be part of your firearms retention tactics or not? And if so, how do you employ that? It doesn't talk to you about intermediate weapons like other force options like pepper spray and some of these other things. So it leaves out 90% of what you probably need to know. You're not going to get it there, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and along with that, an attitude that I know you've come across, I, I've certainly seen it is, and I think at one point in my life, I probably believed this to some extent as well. And that is uh, kind of to Andrew Branca, who's watching here on the live feed today, he says, all American males believe they shoot well. 99% are badly mistaken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and that that's my point is like you get you get concealed carriers, that, you know, guys that are coming into kind of this, this lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. Uh, and they're like, hey, I'm going to start carrying my gun concealed or carrying a gun, period. And the thought process is, well, I grew up shooting. I own a bunch of other guns. You know, I, I spent time on the farm, you know, just plinking away and, do, you know, hunting and all this stuff. Wow. Well, you know, what more is there? To, I, I'm a good shot, right? I just, I just carry this gun. And that, that's kind of the attitude, you know, and that's, again, that's even kind of, I think my attitude in the early days of my own concealed carry was, eh, I know what I'm doing. I'm a pretty good shooter. I, I pull the gun out and I, Plink away at some you know, cans or bottles or whatever, and I do pretty good, right? What more do I need to do? The thing is, is you know that uh, Dunning Kruger effect is 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 very strong. <laughs> yeah, you're you're sitting at the peak of the Dunning Kruger effect when you when you think like that, and <clears throat> and I was like that man. I would say probably before I joined the Marine Corps, I'm like, you know, what, what are they going to possibly teach me? Rich Brown is from a long storied tradition of East Tennessee. Uh, shooters and I'm going to be just fine. And, and I, wow, my mind was blown open with what I learned about farms in the Marine Corps. Then I ended up teaching farms in the Marine Corps. And then I started being a competitive shooter in the early nineties. And I'm like, then my mind got blown again with what is the realm of the possible with a firearm, man. And, it, and I know you're a competitive shooter, Riley, and a lot of people listening today probably are. And I would highly encourage you, if you think you know what you're doing, Go ahead, shoot, shoot a USPSA match, IDPA match. They're going to help you. And you're going to realize, wow, there's a lot more that can be done with this firearm than I thought. For sure. For sure. How, how what, what got you started in the competitive shooting? Um, when I went to high-risk personnel protection course up at Quantico, I came back from that and there was a guy who was running a range right outside of Camp Lejeune. Again, this is like 92, 93 timeframe. And he started a range. He's like, I'm going to have some of these uh, IPSC-style matches, little combat pistol matches at my range. So I started going to those on a Saturday. Um, my partner, Mike Seeklander, and I would, would attend some of those. And, and again, it was eye-opening, not just for me, but I think for a lot of the Marines that were shooting there that thought we knew what we were doing. And then you get in that environment, and you're like, oh, wow, this is there's a lot more to it. Mm. Was that even the start for uh, Seeklander? In his uh, competitive shooting as well? Oh, yeah. When we went on ship in 1992, we were talking about really doing that heavy when we got back. And Mike went out and bought a, a 1911 Colt Gold Cup that was compensated. And we bought a bunch of gear. And as soon as we got back from that deployment, we started uh, started shooting. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. You know, I knew that you guys had served together and went way back. But that's kind of cool, too, that you both also got started in competitive shooting around the same time as well. Um, now, he is a, a world champion. Uh, what, what does that make you? 
<laughs> I used to kick his butt. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <clears throat> but nowadays, not so much. No. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, you know, in, in your article, you talk about, you know, training is is really important. Uh, and you listed it first. And I think for there's a lot of things that could go first in this article. And mindset is a big piece of it, and we're going to get to that. But training is a is a big component because I, I do think that there's some people that probably just by nature of how they're wired or how they were brought up that overall their mindsets you know for whatever reason already pretty pretty decent there's definitely uh-huh. some refinement that can occur uh maybe someone you know ha- already has a pretty solid mindset maybe they buy you know decent gear and they're carrying pretty well but training is just something consistently that I see that is lacking for a lot of shooters uh, and it's not just talking about even the firearm itself. So you list here tactics, of course, medical, man, that's huge. Uh, uh, and then edge weapons. But even, you know, later on in the article too, you talk about other uh, forms of, of self-defense like martial arts, BJJ, specifically you you mentioned. So what, what would your advice be for those listening to the show here today about where, where do they, where should they get started? You know, cause I'll tell you, especially in today's world, you know, again, comparing today to 1992, not only in terms of the gear, but also in terms of the training opportunities, it's a whole new world. It's it's a very different world from 30 years ago. So I, I think that it's very easy to either one, get suckered into training with, with somebody or some company or whatever that maybe is not where your money is best spent for a variety of reasons. Maybe the quality of that training itself is lacking or whatever it's also easy to just get lost in the myriad of of all the great options that are out there as well so what would your advice be and i'm not just talking about firearm training i'm talking about training just in general uh, in the self-defense realm where should people get started what do you think well um on america warriorsociety.com it's it's free we've got all these articles one of them is uh, self-assessment so it's a way to it has you run a physical fitness test and put your scores in, plug your scores into this database, and it'll spit you out a grade on where you're at with regard to your health and fitness. Uh, you'll run the five-by-five five skills test, enter your times, it spits you out a grade there. It, you're going to answer some questions about medical. Basically, it's just a self-assessment, and at the end of it, it gives you a scorecard on where you're at with regard to combatives, shooting with a handgun and the rifle, fitness, uh, edge weapons, uh, unarmed combatives like BJJ or whatever. And at the end of it, you look at your scorecard. And if, you're, if your scorecard says you got an A in shooting, a B in fitness, an F in edge weapons, and an F in medical, then you may want to take your training cycle and just put it in a, in a maintenance mode with regard to the shooting and fitness and then focus on where you're lacking. But I think few people really do put any kind of analytics to it. So we tried to, I mean, it's an imperfect uh, scoring system, Riley. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's filled with our own biases when we put it together. But if you don't have anything, it might be a good place to just evaluate where you're at right now. Hmm. Well, that's awesome. I'll, we'll have to dig up the, uh, the link where to find that uh, a tool. I'm actually on the site right now. I'm all like, okay, where is that? Because I actually didn't even know about that. I feel really dumb now. <laughs> it's called uh, i think it's called and you know because we put it together because a lot of our members came in they're like man there's so much content here in the training 
oh, well, you guys have all these learning modules. I'm almost so overwhelmed. I don't even know where to start. So your, your question, I think that question is a beautiful, valid question. Where do I, where do I start? Well, let's assess where you're at. Okay. Yeah. And then, then we can build you a plan with our learning modules to get you where you need to go. Yeah. You know, it, it can also seem very overwhelming to folks uh, with, I mean, many are probably here looking to be educated about concealed carry, which typically involves a firearm. And, you know, now you start telling them, well, you need to be concerned about medical and you need to be concerned about your health and your fitness. You need to be concerned about uh, hand-to-hand combatives. That can just even, you know, that, that can compound that, uh, that, what, what's the word I'm, word I'm looking for? You know, just that, that, the that paralysis, right? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, decision paralysis, even like now what? So what would you say to someone, you know, and obviously our, our funds, our resources are competing for all these different things as well. So, you know, I, well, I might have a budget of say a thousand dollars that I can use in the next six months, uh, that I can apply towards training. Maybe that's training and ammunition or other gear as well. Well, now where do I split that up? You know, and so what would you recommend looking at all the different disciplines? How does someone get started in uh, deciding where they should put forth their, their best or their initial uh, efforts? You know, I'd probably, I would have to circle back to, uh, to the analysis because I think the analysis is going to determine a lot of that. You're going to, do the analysis and it's going to tell you, well, your, your shooting is good. If that, if your shooting is good, that probably means that you have a good defensive rig. You've got a good firearm. You've got good ammunition. You know how to shoot it, but your medical is lacking. So you're going to probably want to put together an IFAC kit or an individual first aid kit. You're going to want to do stuff like that, right? Did I lose your rally? I'm not sure if you can see and hear me. I've lost you if you're there. Not sure if we're still going. Like we're having some technical difficulty if you're still out there. If you are, I can't see you, so I'll just keep standing by until somebody tells me otherwise. Looking at my notes. 
I think Riley's computer crashed. We'll see if he can get back up on here. And I'm back. <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, that was awkward. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, boy, I, I don't know. Something happened and the computer did not like it. I noticed my, my video started getting laggy and it just never recovered. Ah. <laughs> so uh, I think I had asked you about... Uh, and I didn't get to hear the rest of your response. And obviously, uh, after the fact, I'll have to edit all this and, and fix this and put this back together for the audio file. But uh, I'd asked you about, you know, again, if you had any thoughts or tips or ideas about, you know, looking at all these different disciplines, is there anything that you would prioritize first or anything, you know, you'd recommend as far as getting started with limited training budget and, and uh, resources? Yeah, I mean, we all have limited resources, so that's a great question. But I would go back to the assessment, Riley, and once you do the assessment, let's say you shoot a great five-by-five, by, five by five, then I probably know a few things about you. I can draw the conclusion that you probably have a decent holster, you probably have a good firearm, you probably have got good ammo, you know how to use it because you scored well. So then uh, you probably don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. But when you do the assessment, let's say you can't do a pull-up, okay? 
you can't do 40 crunches in two minutes or whatever. So we know where you're lacking. Maybe you're physically lacking. Then you're going to need to get to the gym. And we've said it before. Maybe you guys have said it too. The best gadget you can buy for your gun is a gym membership for you, right? Yeah. Yep. I like it. Yeah. All right. So uh, we'll have to, like I said, I'll, I'll, we'll find a, or I'll get a link from you or something where people can find this assessment and uh, everybody should go do that and then figure out where you're weakest and, and start tackling those things one by one. Yeah. Now we got 10 tips. We, we're we're going to run out of time getting through all 10. So uh, let's, uh, let's get to number two here, the gun. Oh, you, yeah. you do a really great job of, of talking about, uh, this REAP acronym and, and using that to kind of walk walk us through, you know, some of the important factors of choosing a, a good defensive handgun uh, for carrying. So what is REAP? Walk us through that. Yeah, my, my, my partner Mike put this together as far as I know. It stands for reliability, ergonomics, accuracy, and power. So number one thing a gun has to do, it has to be, it has to function reliably. If it's not reliable, it you don't need to be carrying that gun to defend yourself with because I think a lot of people forget the reason we carry a gun is to use it. And the unfortunate event that you're forced to use it, is this gun going to be reliable? And what does reliability mean? I don't know. It might mean 500 rounds without a stoppage. It might mean a thousand rounds without stoppage. It might mean more than that. And when you're looking at reliability, obviously the magazine can impact that. The type of round you use could impact that. Uh, ergonomics, you know, I think a lot of people pick up the gun up. Oh, this one feels good. Well, does it? It might feel good, but if your thumb can't work the thumb safety because you got arthritis or you can't re- reach the magazine catch or whatever, your your hands can't manipulate the control surface as well, then maybe it's not the right gun for you. Uh, accuracy. And I will tell you, you know, a lot of people really geek out on accuracy, but most production guns are accurate enough. Mm. Accurate enough might mean, you know, uh, a four-inch group at, at 25 yards or something like that. I don't know, but it needs to be somewhat accurate. And finally, power, you know, you got to pick a caliber that uh, that transfers enough kinetic energy to the target to have some sort of effect. But at the same time, does that mean you need to carry a 10 millimeter because it has a lot of power? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. You know, you need to consider what what that is because, of course, with power and ammunition size of 40 or a 10 or or a 45, your ability to carry additional ammo is going to be greatly reduced. So there's a lot of trade-offs in there, but the REAP test is a good way to to put a little bit of uh, uh, analytics toward uh, selective firearm. Yeah. And as is the case with so many things in life is uh, there's always trade-offs with things. I mean, you just touched on the trade-off between, say, a powerful cartridge and the ability to shoot that effectively, controllably, quickly, that sort of thing, right? I love yeah. this REAP acronym. Uh, I might have to steal it. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mike. Reliability, yeah. ergonomics, accuracy, and power. It's a great way to easily remember that. Yeah, cool. That's great. All right. Know the law is number three. This is a big one, and we we spend a good deal of our, our time on our podcast. Uh, you know, we don't try to get too much into the weeds of the law per se, as we're not necessarily legal experts. But uh, looking at various what we call justified saves, these are stories where you know typically civilians use deadly force in a justified manner to stop you know bad things from happening to good people. Uh, 
we look at a lot of those situations. We share a lot of stories too. And, and, and I think one of the biggest lessons to be learned a lot of times is there's lots of times where people, they do things, you know, as far as stopping a threat uh, and they overall do a pretty good job. They probably generally have some understanding of the law, but there seems to be in almost every story we come across that there's there's little things here and there that, well, that might not be the best approach. And, and, and some of that, it comes from really understanding the nuances of the law, and that is easier said than done. But thank goodness we got guys like Andrew Branca. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, big fan. And every year we do Warrior King bring Andrew out. He gives a full his full one day lecture on the laws of self defense. You know, innocence, eminence, uh, proportionality, avoidance, and uh, reasonableness. <clears throat> but besides just self defense law, which is ultimately the most important type of law you need to, to know, I think it's also gun law, ammo law, uh, your carry law in your state, and any state you plan on traveling to self-defense law in your state, in any state that you're planning on traveling to. Because one of the things with the beautiful thing called reciprocity is the gun laws in your state are going to be different from the gun laws in the state you're traveling to. The self-defense laws in your state that you're maybe hopefully familiar with, maybe a little bit more nuanced, to borrow your word, Riley, in the state that you're going to. And uh, where you can and can't carry, I promise you, will be different where you live and where you're heading to. So you have to know the law, man, or, or anybody can run afoul of it. It's easy. Mm -hmm. and, and you're exactly right in that regard. I mean, gun law, carry law, self-defense law, three types of laws that, and you cover these in this, in this article also. Uh, now gun law and carry law, those are two things that we are at concealedcarry.com a little bit better at, uh, but then, we bring Andrew on where we need him for the for the self defense side of things, uh, but it's really important to know all, all three of those uh, pieces of law. Um, and, and you know, to that point, you know, I try not to get too off into the weeds with self defense law because that's not my lane. I mean, I I think I get it pretty well, but Andrew is also very good about when someone asks him about carry law or gun law, he's like not my thing, bro. Like, yeah, I just do the self-defense thing. And, and, and so, and I think that goes to show like a lot of people in their, in their minds, I think they kind of lump all those things together, but they really are distinct. And, and there's nuances in, across all those different uh, uh, areas of the law. Yeah. And again, going back to, uh, you were a police officer and I was a police officer, you know, it was all that we had to know there. And then it seems like almost every, uh, theater I've ever been a Marine in, the ROE, the rules of engagement in that theater were, were a little bit different than the one that I was in previously. So uh, it's something that I've you know, obviously thought a lot about, but it doesn't mean I'm an expert in any regard. And I defer to the experts on all this stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Consistency of carry, number four. I like this one a lot. What does this mean? Yeah, it means uh, when you carry it, you know, uh, where you carry it, how you carry it. You know, sometimes like, well, when I'm carrying my EDC X9, I carry around in the chamber. But see, when I carry a Glock, I don't. And uh, sometimes I run an appendix rig and sometimes I like the small of the back. And sometimes I take it out of my 
uh, appendix carry because it's not comfortable for this long ride. And I'll, I'll put it in my truck holster. Or I'll put it in the center console. Consistency of carry really is like when, where, and how you carry it. And just whatever it is, pick, you know, figure it out. Uh, if, if like, well, why do you take it out of your pants when you get in your truck? Well, it's, this rig is not comfortable. Then get a new rig. Uh, this belt is not, you know, I, when I wear this kind of dress belt or these slacks, I have to use a different kind of holster. Uh, I think you got to figure that out because the only way, you know, the best gun having a gunfight is the gun you have on you, right? Not the one you have in your truck or the one you wish you had or the one you left at home. So consistently carry that firearm if you're going to choose to carry a firearm. Yeah. Well, and you, you end this uh, part in your article by saying, if you're going to carry your gun, carry your gun. Uh, I, I I think, you know, I, I, I strive to carry every day, 365 days in a year. Well, this year is 366, actually, leap year. Uh, 366 days this year, I, I strive to carry every one of those days. Are there going to be a few exceptions here and there? Sure. There's going to be those long travel days. You're on planes all day or you're in some other non-permissive environment where it's just not possible. Sure. But I mean, if you can carry your gun, carry your gun. What, what, what do you find kind of prevents or, or keep, holds people back from being able to actually, you know, is there, is there anything, any recommendations you have as far as kind of getting, getting to that point where you're, you're carrying consistently and uh, not only in terms of location, but also on a day-to-day basis. I think one of the big ones, and this is completely off the top, I haven't really thought about why people don't carry, but as you're asking the question, Riley, the only thing that leaps to mind is, you know, a lot of my friends work on secure facilities. They work in a skiff or they work with their sensitive materials. You know, they can't carry that gun onto the facility. Even in cases where their job is to guard that facility, they can't carry their own personal firearm onto the facility and leave it in their vehicle, even though they're going to get a firearm issued to them as soon as they get through the layers of security. And, and there was no different for me. My you know, I, I'm a retired Marine. The last several years when I was stationed on, on a Paris Island, I couldn't carry a gun on base. So that meant that I couldn't drive with a gun in my car to get on base, let alone carry on base. So I think that where people work and stuff like that can, can really hamper their ability to carry maybe as much as they wish they could. Yeah. That, that really is a tough one right there. If, if you're a federal employee working in a facility of some kind, I mean, that was the roughest three-year patch of my own is when I, I, I did a stint in the federal government uh, for three years in a secure facility, and that sucked because Monday through Friday, I, I could not take my gun with me. And it doesn't make any sense, you know? Yeah. Yep. Now, I wasn't defenseless, mind you. I, I, I knew what I could have and what I couldn't have, and uh, I had tools, I'm sure, as you did as well. Well, yeah, and then that, that's exactly right. You know, I don't let the fact that this place, you know, like um, I love to go to Europe, and I can't carry a gun there. Yeah. Your mindset is that it doesn't really matter because I have other tools. I'm the weapon system. I keep my body fit. I have other tools that I can legally carry, and, and I know how to utilize them. I carry gravity with me everywhere I go and I, yeah. I you know, I do jujitsu. So, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's just kind of a mindset and a, and a way of training that, that overcomes that because I'm going to live my life and have a great time, which I encourage everyone in our community to do. Don't get pigeonholed into this stuff and let 
let it deter you from actually living life, you know? Yep. Well, and that segues really nicely into item number five on your, your 10 uh, item list here, which is mindset. And you say this one is easily the most important topic of the list. Uh, I'm not going to quote this whole thing here, but a couple of things that stood out to me. Uh, actually, this quote that you have here from Japan's greatest samurai, Miyamoto Musashi, which that makes me really happy to hear you quote because I'm a big fan of samurais in Japan and all that. He wrote in the Book of Five Rings, In my school, you can win with a long weapon, and yet you can also win with a short weapon. For this reason, I don't specify the length of the sword, but regard the essence of my approach as the resolve to gain victory by any means, whatever the weapon and whatever its size. What does that mean to you? <laughs> you know, it means pretty much a, a plain text reading what it is it doesn't it doesn't matter you know if you don't have the will to use the firearm or the weapon or whatever it is the fact that you carry one doesn't mean anything uh moreover if you're completely unarmed you can figure something out and be the most dangerous man in the room uh with a, a ballpoint pen so i think that will to win that that mindset really has to uh go with you everywhere you go yeah yeah that's so true. Uh, and of course, you talk a little bit about situational awareness uh, and hardening. And actually, I wanted to get your take on what you mean by hardening. You referred to the run, hide, fight mantra. Yeah. Uh, but you kind of have a little bit of a different take than what we sometimes hear with run, hide, fight. Yeah, I got into this um, looking at some of the active killer stuff that was going on and, you know, run, hide, fight. I'm a big fan of that. I think it's a, it's it's a really good. Sometimes it's misunderstood. Oh, first I have to run and then I hide and then I might have to fight. Well, it may be fight. Fight might be the first one. Hide might be the first one. Run might be the first one. It doesn't matter. It, may, it depends on a lot of variables as to which order that comes in. But if you hide in a room and you don't have the ability to harden that room, and you may die in that room. So I think having uh, knowing how to harden a room that you find yourself in, or let's say you're a daycare worker at a church and an active killer comes in your church, if you had a simple device that you could put in that door jam and stop a threat from coming in that door and harming the children that you're there to protect, I think that would be a lot because just shutting and locking the door may not be enough. So there are a lot of really cool gadgets on the market today that are designed to help you harden those uh, breach points, those doors and stuff. And having a few of those in your church room or in your go bag or get home bag or at your, in your office desk, I think can mean the difference, especially if your plan is to hide in, in one of those events. Yeah. You know, the science proves, I mean, if you just look at statistical analysis of mass killings, People that make it difficult to kill them, they're, I mean, substantially greater probability of surviving that that event. And, you know, referring to things like uh, the Virginia Tech shooting, where you had some of these classrooms that that killer was able to just go in, you know, willy-nilly, no, no uh, nobody, you know, keeping him from going in and just walked in and, and started shooting up uh, these classrooms, right? But then you had some classrooms and particularly once some of these students realized what was going on on the floor below them, or even as he got up to that second floor and started working his way towards them, they started 
barricading the rooms, blocking the windows, you know, doing everything they could to make it difficult for him to get to them. And those are the rooms, the ones specifically that made some effort of making them a difficult target. That's where the survivors were. So I I like to think of it, you know, this run, hide, fight methodology as what do I need to do in this moment to make myself as difficult to kill as possible? Mm -hmm. Well, and different, you know, it might be closing with the threat, you know, that might be the the safest thing. You know, we, as we saw in the church shooting down there where, uh, was Mr. Wilson that ended the threat there? I think it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of those ushers, when the shotgun came out, maybe the best thing for him to do, I'm not anymore in quarterback, it may have been close the distance and get on top of that yep. that firearm. So, yeah, and it, you got a lot of bad choices when those things happen, and you have to pick from the least bad, right? Yeah. But to your point here with this uh, number five uh, mindset, I mean, that's, that, that's what mindset is. That's what's so important about it is – Mentally, you're prepared. You're in the in the place you need to be, so that if you were faced at that moment, like some of those people were in that West Freeway Church in Texas, you know what would you do? I, I hope you, myself, those watching our our show here today, listening to it, uh, whatever that we would see that opportunity, recognize it for what it is, and close and step in there. I mean, because there was definitely a, there was quite a bit of time there, wasn't there? There was, and on the mindset, uh, one of the courses I went to in the in the Marine Corps, I can't remember which one it was, but one of the trainers said something like, "You know, gunfight, you're going to get shot. Let's just get that out of the way. But you know, if it's a if it's a two way exchange, you're probably going to get shot. Um, most handgun rounds are not that effective at killing folks. So you know, all your job is to do is stay alive till you get to the hospital, and and let and then when you get there, just relax, let them do their job, and and uh, so I've always kind of thought about that. Hey, I'm going to get shot. That's probably going to happen. And, and that's cool. I'll, I'll can keep the fight going. And then when I get to the hospital, I just relax and let them do their job. But whatever your mantra needs to be to, to help you with your mindset, do it. Yeah. Number six, the right gear. <clears throat> and you're not just talking about a gun or the ammo here. We're talking about other gear. You have a pretty good list here. Uh, what are some things that, in your early days of concealed carry, uh, Rich, do you, you know, looking back, that you go, man, I wish I knew how important this one thing was. Yeah, probably the belt. Going back then, you know, I might have had some sort of rigors belt on, uh, but it was not that robust, you know. So I, I always believe in starting with the belt as the foundation. Uh, then the holster's got to be high quality. Then a good set of robust sights. I really like a wide notch rear and a, and a fi- thin fiber optic front. I think that helps me acquire my sights pretty quick. I mean, but your, you know, somebody else's experience may vary. Uh, it also means, you know, having a cell phone, right? And having it in the right pocket. If you're going to draw your handgun and fight with your, in your right-handed guy, then the cell phone probably needs to be in the, in the, in the left side pocket. And we see this often when guys come to the range, okay, we're going to get on your cell phone and they're fumbling to, to get the, get the right hand to dig the, the phone out. I mean, it's simple as that. These little micro prepping things, but anyway, uh, pocket flashlight, man, huge fan. Don't be anywhere without my 
ProTac 1L. Uh, nice. Unplug there. Uh, a knife. If if you're going to carry a knife and you have decided that you've trained with it, you know how you're going to integrate it into your your system, then you should be carrying a knife. Uh, tourniquets or some sort of additional stuff. I mean, again, going back to these YouTube videos, you'll watch people dump dump a thousand things out of their pockets. I don't normally roll like that. I keep it pretty pretty minimal as much as possible. But but anyway, Riley, that's some things that you need to think about. <laughs> nice man. Yeah, I'm with you on a lot of that as well, uh, especially that belt piece. You know, for too long, I put up with a crappy belt. <laughs> yeah. I don't think people realize, you know, if they're new to, to concealed carry and dressing to the gun, uh, they'll figure it out eventually. But I can't say it enough. Pick a good belt. And, and, uh, and yeah, I was going to say our sponsors got some great belts, but I won't go into that. <laughs> well, that's all right. I'll, I'll go into it for you. Precision Tactical, right? Precision holsters, man. Yeah, they make yeah. the Ultra Penix holster I use, and they make the belt that Mike and I wear. And check them out; they they make some great stuff. I was checking out some of Mike's gear at uh, the bigger circle class I was in in November with him. Uh, looks like really solid gear. So, oh yeah, super impressed with uh, precision, precision holsters and precision tactical. All right, health and fitness. Uh, you make a really solid point here. This is number seven. Uh, you are far more likely to die of a heart attack or stroke than a violent assault. So what does that lead us? Hopefully that leads us to do something. Well, yeah, man, you know, I'm a, I turned 50 last year. So, uh, you know, health and fitness is big on my list. I get, like I say in the article, does that, does that, am I saying that you need to be ready to go to Bud's? or special forces assessment selection. I'm not saying that. Well, what I am saying is you may need to have the ability to pull your rear end up over a, a something or, or do whatever, you know, but I think people don't think about this enough because again, the killer of most people that carry a gun is never going to be a, a, a violent felon. It's probably going to be their health, man. And it's something that you need to remedy. And again, this could be easily number one because um, the fitter you are, the less likely you are to succumb to those things. The fitter you are, the, the more likely you are to be able to handle the stresses of those kind of, uh, intense emotional moments and stressful moments. Mm -hmm. So something to think about. Yeah. And how often do you see comments like, well, I can't do X, Y, Z thing as it relates to carrying a gun or carrying a, a proper gun or carrying in a, maybe a more ideal position because i'm 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 too round i'm too big i've got you know these other health challenges i mean we obviously have to accommodate uh things for ourselves uh but i i i think that's only to a certain point i mean like if you have a legitimate uh restriction you got a, a injured knee and that you know it's been repaired and is to the best you can like you got to accommodate that right but but talking about those health choices that we actually have as far as choices, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I've had three knee surgeries and a, I've got a screw holding my shoulder together, but if I can get out there and train as hard as I do uh, at my age with these injuries and stuff like that, then I think anybody can, if you do it smart and you, you work within what you have and you're aware of the limitations that you have, there's no reason why anybody listening to us today can't do that. And again, it's creating and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. 
nothing crazy. Like I'm not saying you have to be able to bench press a tank. I'm just saying you need to do something, get your body moving, moving, doing some resistance training or something like that. Yeah. Number eight, BJJ, Brazilian ah. Jiu-Jitsu. Why? <laughs> well, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is not perfect, and I was really reticent to put that on there, but I think that if you know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or, or have a good understanding of some of it, and then you can employ your edge weapons uh, from the clothes guard or what have you, or you can you bring a firearm into the mix uh, in a grappling position or a clinch position, and you can do that, then you're going to be light years ahead of everybody else because the entangled gunfight is not a myth. It's actually a reality. I mean, some people say, well, it really doesn't exist. You know, I've looked at this a lot. It does exist. I mean, um, and you need to be training for it. Yeah. You know, whether it's a gunfight that turns into an entanglement or it starts as a hands-on fight and progresses to a gunfight, there's so much video evidence we can point, I can point to, like, look, this, 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 this. Uh, and actually, a lot of our justified save stories, I have some statistics from those, and it's about 30, I think it's 28% of the stories we've shared on the podcast involve some kind of physical altercation along with the gunfight. Well, yeah. I mean, I was in a, I was in a Middle Eastern country as a, as a much, much younger man, <laughs> and I ended up getting in a kind of a gun grappling situation with my rifle and ended up having to... Mm to really muzzle strike a couple of folks to get them off me. You know, it wasn't necessarily a shoot situation. It could have quickly turned into a shoot situation, but because they were grabbing the rifle and, uh, you know, and it, was, it was a pretty dicey little moment there. But I mean, the entanglement is real because what is one minute somebody standing near you, the next minute they're trying to take your weapon. Uh, because we're, this is another important truism, Riley, and I, I don't know how many times you, you guys have talked about it, but I'm sure you have. Everywhere you go as a concealed carrier, you're taking a gun there. If you go to the movies, you're eating popcorn with your honey and you're carrying your concealed firearm. You brought a, a movie to the late night showing of, you know, whatever. And uh, it was something that I, it really didn't dawn on me until I was in the police academy. Somebody said, one of the instructors said, what percentage of the time there cadets will you be in a situation involving a firearm? Is it 5%, 10%, you know? Somebody said as high as 20% and the instructor goes 100% of the time because you brought the firearm there. So uh, in close proximity to others, you could potentially be in an entanglement and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a good way to know how to handle those, those intimate contact grappling stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Number nine, clothing and attire. What would you uh, say about this for our listeners today? Well, I use a, a marathon analogy, Riley, in that article, and and I I did that purposefully because as you one of the things you learn from preparing for a twenty six point two mile run, or I've done a Spartan Beast, you know, and stuff like that, is how is this equipment going to work with me as I run and as I train, and is it going to work right? And you will you will pick and choose clothing that doesn't work, just like you and I with our belts, right? We had to figure out that we needed a more robust belt. Dressing to the gun, what does it look like? I really like this shirt, but it's a little too tight to properly conceal this firearm. Or I really, really like this pants, but it does, it's too, a little too snug to carry inside the waistband. So there's a lot of things there to consider when, you, when you're dressing to the gun. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's so true. Uh, now, it seems to me, and, and frankly, I'm a little bit surprised that uh, a lot of times I see you in uh, plaid flannel shirts and whatnot. Is that is that a special concealed carry secret, or is that just a Rich Brown style thing? Well, I'm an East Tennessean man, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, I try to be the gray man here in town. I tell you a real quick funny story. <laughs> when I first moved here. Uh, my retirement party in the Marine Corps, some of my guys knew I was going back. I was retiring to this farm. So they gave me some brand new overalls. I wore them into town one day and I'm, I've got my brand new overalls on. I'm all proud of <clears throat> and this guy. This guy comes up to me, this old timer. And he says, what you running for? I looked at him. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not running. He's like, no, what are you running for? I said, I'm not running, sir. I'm seated. And he's like, no, no, no. Every time one of you fancy fellers comes in here with your brand new overalls on, you're always wanting us to vote for you. So what are you running for? <laughs> so again, it's like, you got to know your situation that you're in. And, and uh, you know, do, did I wear flannels when I went to Rome? Of course not. Right. <laughs> but around here, it is the appropriate going about your day attire. <laughs> you know, I came here today, you know, wearing the closest thing I, I could find to what Rich might wear. And, and, and you went with the hoodie, bro. <laughs> I know, man. I'm changing it up. It's pretty cold down here today, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's been kind of cold out here in Colorado as well. Number 10. We saved the number 10 for last, of course, uh, because, you know, believe it or not, Marines do know how to count from one to 10. <laughs> uh, ammunition selection. Yeah, ammunition selection. Uh, a lot of people probably overthink this, and uh, I, you know, I have a brother-in-law. God bless him that I think over overthinks this one. But I would recommend maybe a jacketed hollow point that's bonded ammunition, um, rapidly and reliably expands when it hits tissue that doesn't overpenetrate. And I could say, well. Like I say in the article, maybe the federal HST is that round for you, but I don't know because if it doesn't reliably cycle and function in your firearm, then it's definitely not the right round for you. So whatever you choose to use of that expensive self-defense ammo, you're going to have to train with it. You can't just buy a box, load a magazine, throw it in your gun and and roll out because you don't know how that stuff is going to cycle in your firearm until you shoot quite a bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, and and I I don't remember if it was in this. Uh, yeah, actually, it, this is where you say it. You said the stopping power is shot placement, not some weird voodoo the round does. If you can't control the shot placement reliably, then you need to train grip, sights, trigger until you can. And I was just thinking about you know uh, I was actually going to send a message to him, uh, Andy Brown, author of Warnings Unheeded. I got a copy up there. Uh, oh yeah, you know, and, and his the the. Uh, uh, active, uh, you know, shooter that he had to stop uh, at Fairchild Air Force Base. He, you know, he was carrying a, an M9. Yeah, and I'm guessing, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask him. I'm going to send him the question. Be like, dude, what were you using? Because I'll bet you it was military standard military issue FMJ. I guarantee you, it probably was. Right? That's exactly what I was carrying when I was carrying uh, yep. in the Marine Corps. Nothing fancy there. Which, which isn't the most arguably effective thing to carry right and over penetration no. can be an issue but to your point stopping power is shot placement how can you elaborate on that just a little bit more for us yeah man i mean uh you take a look at these gunfights and a lot of times uh 
And I think there's some truth to the fact that whether someone goes down after being shot has a lot more to do with psychology and necessarily physiology. But at the same time, uh, if you shoot somebody in their uh, hand, don't think they're going to go down. If you shoot somebody in the brainstem, I promise you they're going to go down. So just like Wilson shooting in the church shows us, you know, that shot placement was critical to stop the threat. And ultimately, that's what we want to do. Uh, we want to stop the threat. So make shot placement what you focus on, right? Yeah. Yeah, so true. But then again, you know, try not to overthink things. Just use HST, gold dot, Yep. critical duty. Yep. You know, I mean, any any number of these rounds that are well known uh, and have a, a great deal of real world data as far as look at how many police departments and agencies are issuing those rounds and the effectiveness that they have when they when it comes to stopping a, a bad guy on a lot of these cops uh, worst day yeah one of my good friends tc fuller wrote an article for our site as well because he was at the fbi firearms training unit there in quantico when they did the change from i think 40 to 9 mil yeah and so he wrote an article for us about all the things that they went into all the science that went into why they chose that ammunition but still that ammunition is only as effective as where you place it, right? Yep. Yeah, you got it. So again, you know, it kind of comes full circle, doesn't it? As far as yeah. where we started, Rich, with number one being training. Yeah, totally, man. And and the last thing, you know, the last reason I wrote this article was because I, there were some things that I thought were unnecessary out there that was that people on YouTube were saying, oh, man, this is so important. This is the number two most important thing. So I added a few things, I don't know if you want to go into them or not, that I thought weren't as necessary yeah. as maybe some people thought they were. Well, if you still have time, I have time. Absolutely, brother. <laughs> okay, because we're at that hour mark that I told you we wouldn't uh, exceed. Of course, there was probably a 10-minute delay due to my computer crashing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... Uh, you know, so these are some things that I, I think you're right. A lot of people would look at and go, "This is a this is a concealed carry tip," but you're saying that these aren't maybe as big a factor as what people might think. So, what are those? Uh, some of the things I saw was, you know, touching or adjusting your your firearm. You just never, ever, ever, ever do this. Never under any circumstances. Well, if the gun's fixing to fall out, you may want to reach and touch your shirt and gently move that gun where it's. It's back situated in its holster. Um, and if you have to adjust your gun, people in public do not normally carry firearms. So when they see you adjusting your garment on your, you know, I'm touching my shirt on my, at my belt line and gently moving something around, they don't naturally assume, oh, he's got a, he's moving his shield or he's moving his uh, Smith & Wesson M&P around or his Glock 19X. That's the way you think, man. So I don't think that's that big a deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's something to, I mean, and I, there was a time that I would have agreed with, you know, don't ever touch or, you know, adjust your gun, you know, and we're not talking about taking, you definitely don't want to take things out of your holster, uh, you know, out and about in public, whatever you, you want to do that only where it's safe and appropriate for you to, to make those kind of that level of an adjustment. I'll tell you that's happened once or twice. You carry every day, it, it, you know, it, in your life, uh, there's going to be times where you're like, crap, I got to make an adjustment. Well, I try to find a place that's appropriate to do so. And, you know, like a family bathroom for me is like my, my little secret. 
you know, <laughs> where it's like the bathroom, you know, where you're going to be completely alone and you can go in there and lock the door and being absolutely mindful of, of safety, you know, make that adjustment you needed to make at that point, get, you know, back into the holster, whatever it is, and away you go. But, uh, but I would agree with you at one point, and, and, and you know, I've gotten to now where I've learned that there's some things I think I can even do as far as tweaking this or adjusting that and making it look like it's just normal movement, normal clothes adjusting, because people do do that all the time. They do do that all the time, and, and a lot of people will carry their cell phones on some sort of uh, carrying device on their belt line, so I think, and they're moving them all day long, and, and I think that's a lot of what people think you're doing. Uh, but again, like you said, Raleigh, and I want to be clear, that doesn't mean taking out your gun. Right. And if your gun is is constantly shifting and moving around, you probably need to make some adjustments to the holster or the belt or your trousers or something that's causing you to adjust and touch your gun all the time. Because that's not good. The gun should, once it goes in the holster, should never come out of that holster wiring. I don't believe in open carry. Have I done it? Yeah, absolutely, man. Me and Mike go on hiking and, and hunting trips out in uh Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, almost every single year, man. And I'm in the back country, I'm not concealing that firearm, but I'm not going to Starbucks with it either, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Yeah, good thoughts there, brother. Um, actually, I was just going to add to that that, you know, we've we've touched on already a quality gear like belt, holster, uh, you know, your clothes can come into this as well. And if you're you the, the higher quality gear that you're using, typically the less problems you have with things moving, shifting, and needing adjustment. Would you agree? A hundred percent agree, yeah. Yeah. So if you're using if you're having the adjustings a lot of times, I think it's a, a good idea to look at what you're doing and evaluate that and, and ask how you can do it better. All right. So what else do we have? Unnecessary CCW stuff. Printing, man. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's one of those things, again, <clears throat> if I can see the, the crisp outline of your firearm, that's not what I'm talking about. If, if that, that's not, you know, that's not printing. That's advertising what you're carrying. But if there's a little bit of the magazine leaves a bump every now and then when you turn a certain way, I don't see that as that big of a problem. Others may. I personally don't. Now, if you're carrying um, a, a Glock 17 with a... Uh, with a mag well on it and it's sticking way out here because you carry three o'clock position. That's not what I'm talking about. That you're carrying maybe too big of a gun and you're printing too much, but a little bit of printing doesn't necessarily bother me because again, most people don't carry a gun and they wouldn't normally assume that you are. And another thing when it comes to carrying a gun in a holster, there's a friend of mine, he's a retired secret service agent. And then he went to the air marshals and was their inspector general for the air marshals. And he says, Rich, when I was uh, on Bush's Secret Service detail and stuff like that, he goes, you know how I could tell who the good guys with guns were? And I said, no. How, how do you tell that? And I'm like, here it comes. <laughs> if they have their gun in a holster, they're a good guy. And it was like, he was dead serious. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. If the guy's carrying a gun in a holster, it's a high-quality gun. Uh, it's in a holster. It's, it's concealed. And I can see a little bump, and he's wearing 5'11 pants or something ridiculous. This guy is a good guy, man. I'm not sweating this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth in that as well. <laughs> Tell us about night sights. Yeah. Um, when I first got into this, probably in the early to mid nineties, I thought night sights were the cat's meow 
And I've kind of backed off on that because they don't really do anything to help you identify the target. They show you where your sites are, and that's really cool. But unless I can identify my target with that, I don't really know if, I, if I've got to shoot or not. So I don't see that as that big of a deal. If I light someone up with my light, it normally will backlight my own sights um, against the threat. So that's more important to me. Night sights are can be good if you have your firearm in a holster or something like that at your bedside table. It's going to illuminate where the gun is and the orientation of the gun. So maybe night sights are good for that. But I don't think that they're a have to have on your defensive handgun. That's my opinion. Uh, I agree. I concur. This has been something we've hit on on the podcast numerous times that, uh, yeah, if you are relying on your night sights, chances are you are not using enough light to identify what you are shooting. Yeah. Spot on, man. Yeah. Good thoughts. And the final one here, carry positions. Yeah. You know, it's, I think I myself, I'm a huge advocate of appendix carry. It's, it's the way I've been carrying a, a firearm since probably, like I said, 96 or 97 is when I made the switch over. And, uh, but it's not for everybody. And which is why I'm fine with it. If you're carrying it some other way, uh, four o'clock, five o'clock, three o'clock, whatever. That's cool, man. Just again, it goes back to consistency of carry. If you carry that way that know the limitations of what you're doing, know where it's going to be a, a hindrance to you. Know where if you're bending over, you carry it the three o'clock position, you're bending over to put things in your truck. It's going to expose your gun and your, your hands are away from the firearm. So understand the limitations of your carry position work to the, to eliminate those disadvantages and go forward. But I, I, I'm not going to run around being an acolyte for the appendix carry and say that's what everybody should do because I think it's the, the greatest thing in the world, you know? Yep. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, a good good way to wrap this up here today as well. Uh, all right. So, guys, uh, I'll make sure we include a link to this article in the show notes as well as I'll go back and edit the uh, – Facebook and YouTube posts as well to include it so you can find it easily and I'd recommend you go read this article the 10 tips on carrying concealed to win the fight there's a lot that goes into winning a fight uh, and uh, is this is you know as you said this is not even a complete fully comprehensive list no no and the other thing is you know I think you hit on something that may remind me like why are you carrying a gun to begin with? You know, what's the whole purpose of carrying a gun? Is it to exercise your constitutional rights? And if so, not knock yourself out. If you, but for me, you know, I'm carrying a gun for the horrible event that may occur when and if I ever have to use it, right? So with that being said, there's a whole lot more that goes into it than just carrying a gun. What is the context in which I'm carrying it? What is the context in which I may have to use it someday? And then I let that dictate a lot of the other things around it. Yeah. Solid advice, man. Guy, uh, Rich, anything else that we've missed or that you've, you're just sitting there thinking, man, I wish I could have said this thing or that thing, or as a kind of final parting words, uh, where, where should people go to, to find out more, to find you, to, you know, anything else you want to kind of throw out there as far as websites, uh, social media, whatever it is. Yeah, just a, you know, a, a thank you to you and Mr. Paulson for all that you guys do for the Concealed Carry Nation, man. Uh, 
You guys have been doing a phenomenal job for years. I've certainly heard what you're doing. Mike has too, and consumed some of your content. And、uh, just thanks again to you guys. I don't have anything other than you can find me at AmericanWarriorSociety.com. Like us and follow us on the social media platforms. We're there. If you need to reach out to me, Rich at AmericanWarriorSociety.com, and、uh, I'll take care of you as much as I can. Nice. It's awesome. Guys, there you have it. You heard it from the man, Rich Brown. Again,、uh, give them some love.、Uh, I, I, I will find this、uh, evaluation、uh, tool that you guys have, and we're going to make sure we push that out because I think that's really awesome. And、uh, yeah, all right. So today's episode, again, brought to you by Guardian Nation, GuardianNation.com, and MountainManMedical.com. And honorarily, AmericanWarriorSociety.com. So you guys know where it's at. And yeah, I don't think I have anything more other than to say because this is the thing on our show, Rich. That you got to train right, train often, and train safe, so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws. But things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.